Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. My name is Dave Fletcher, and this is a special episode of Reasonable Doubts. We'll be back with a regular episode soon. On October 20th of 2012, Professor Paul Kurtz died in his home in Amherst, New York, at the age of 86. Most of you listening to the show are probably familiar with the work of Paul Kurtz, and if you aren't, you should be. Paul was the founder of the Center for Inquiry, the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, or PSYCOP, uh, Prometheus Press. He was a professor of philosophy and a prolific author and the father of the modern skeptical movement and secular humanism itself. This is the man who defined secular humanism, wrote the Humanist Manifesto. Everything that we do within the secular movement is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And truly, there is no more titanic force than that of Paul Kurtz. Speaking both personally and for the podcast, uh, the work of Paul Kurtz has deeply influenced um, our approach, the tone of the show, and the things we value. He will be deeply missed, and his work will continue to enlighten and inspire people for many generations to come. Going way, way back to the very early days of this show, Jeremy and I had an opportunity to do an interview with Paul Kurtz. This was long before we were really much of anything as far as podcasts go. Episode 6, um, we had really just shown up. But he agreed to sit down with us and share some of his time and wisdom with us. In the wake of the death of Paul Kurtz, we thought we'd share our conversation with him again. If you've heard it before, it is certainly worth listening to again. And if you haven't heard it, hopefully it will give you a new or deeper appreciation for the man and his work. So here it is, our conversation with the late Professor Paul Kurtz. Thank you so much, Paul Kurtz, for agreeing to be on our show. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. Delighted to be here, Jeremy, and I believe that we ought to be reasonable in our thought processes, critical thinking, and that the importance of doubt is part of the process of inquiry. So I love the title of your <laughs> podcast. You are the major proponent of secular humanism in the world today, and your legacy will be remembered as that. But there are people such as Tim LaHaye and other writers on the religious right who claim that secular humanism is a evil philosophy, that it leads to rampant immorality, and that it is trying to take possession and control of the entire world. <laughs> How do you address those? Well, claims? I think that's a li libelous charge, <laughs> and, uh, uh, a scandalous in, uh, in one sense, because uh, 
I don't. I, I think they've inflated. Uh, That's a kind of conspiracy that they said that secular humanists control the universities and the colleges. Now, I don't have a back room where the president of Harvard and Yale and Princeton <laughs> call me up. That would control the ACLU and Americans United, all the liberal <laughs> think tanks or uh, advocacy groups, uh, and that. Uh, uh, the media as well. <laughs> so that's the charge that they made when they first uh, launched this. And I think they really first began attacking me when I when I edited, well, I actually drafted Humanist Manifesto 2 and issued it in 1973 and made the front page of the New York Times. And I was very pleased to see that. And uh, after that, they began attacking me. It began in the late 70s, actually, and in 80 when Reagan came. And I, so I think that's fictitious uh, effort to demonize people you disagree with and to attribute that to them more powers than we have. I, I wish we had more influence or as much influence as they said, but we do not. And I think that's pure hyperbole. What in your mind is the, the range and the extent of influence that secular humanism as a philosophy has in society. Well, I do think that secular humanism as a, a philosophical, a scientific and a ethical outlook does have a great influence. I don't deny that. And indeed, in answer to Michael Novak, who was a distinguished Roman Catholic theologian, I happen to know him quite well, uh, secular humanism is almost equivalent to modernism. He even makes that point. Surely, uh, secularism namely uh, the secularization of values since the Renaissance, the turning from God and the uh, divine city to humans and the secular city. That has been the development since the Renaissance. And the, you might say, in one sense, the whole strain of modern thought, the scientific revolution, the quest for a new method in the modern world, uh, the, uh, new en- the Enlightenment, uh, the democratic revolutions of our time. So it's uh, the Renaissance was a, a humanistic development and a secular development, and the growth of science is crucial to secular humanism because we take the method of of inquiry as crucial. So, yes, secularism is equivalent to what has emerged in the modern world, uh, but the agenda of secular humanism has not been fully achieved. And it seems to me that we need a new enlightenment today and that because there's opposition to secular humanism uh, as the in, as an intellectual outlook, which has had an enormous impact on, on the contemporary world. Do you think that secular humanism has had a, a disproportionate um, impact given the, the number of uh, people in the country who... Uh, call themselves atheist and agnostic. It's maybe 10%. Sounds like a, a, a pretty think fair number, I a little think higher than that. The Harris Poll issued in December of uh, 2006, mm-hmm. published in the Financial Times, indicated that there were 14% agnostics and 4% atheists. So that's 18% mm-hmm. plus uh, even more who didn't want to answer the question or didn't like it was framed. So, so the numbers have been growing in the United States. When I talked about secular humanism, I was talking uh, on a global scale. Right. And I think secular humanism Certainly. is growing. Certainly. And Europe is becoming secular. Europe is post-Christian, post-religious. 
the industrial Re- revolution, the information revolution. That's all part of these new new uh, institutions. So don't identify secular humanism simply with uh, atheism and agnosticism or skepticism. Mm-hmm. It's much broader than that. It's a secularization of our institutions. It's a whole new outlook on life uh, that is very deep in the contemporary world. Yes. And, and I think that's a, a very important distinction to make. Susan Jacoby in Freethinkers talks about how the founding fathers, some of them were Christian, some of them were deists, but they're all secularists. Yes. Well, that's, uh, sec- maybe there are two senses of secularism. Yeah. The first sense, yes, the American Constitution, the First Amendment, Congress should make no law respecting the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof. That is a remarkable statement that mm. uh, put into the Constitution, uh, by written by Madison and then uh, and gone through the Constitutional Convention and then endorsed uh, boldly by Jefferson. So that the separation of church and state is the first sense of secularism. And my recent research indicates that there are 94 countries on the planet which have something analogous in their constitutions. So that, in other words, it's opposed to theocracy. Mm-hmm. And it says that the state should be neutral about religion and that it will respect freedom to believe or not to believe any denomination, any sect, any outlook. Yeah, so that's the first sense. Right, but but we were the first to have that in our Constitution. We were the yes. first to, to have a Constitution that, that gave rights yeah. to the people. Why are we so far behind? Why are we still yeah, struggling with point. the separation of church and state? Yes and no, we are and we are not. I mean, it's true that Jefferson and Madison and Washington and others uh, were secularists, they were deists, and uh, they didn't believe in theism. Now, theism claims that God is a person revealed in the Old New Testament, or then by latter-day Muslims in the Quran, and so they they rejected revealed religion, salvation, and they, so they were God created the universe and left it alone. But in any case, you can be religious and be a secularist. The Seventh-day Adventists are a, a Protestant denomination, and they're strong supporters of secularism because often the the new sects may be repressed by the older denominations. So, so you will respect all religions or none. You cannot allow religion to have a special place in the legislative political structure of a country. And now what's happened? Well, I think... Basically, we're still a secular country, but the growth of the evangelical movement in the last two to three decades is, for my mind, disturbing because they're questioning separation of church and state. Particularly the Bush administration want faith-based charities and uh, as opposed to stem cell research and is uh, trying to turn back the separation principle, which is vital. And yet they enjoy all the benefits of modernism, too. Indeed, they do. Even if they're rejecting the process. Uh, You mentioned earlier, we need a new enlightenment. Yes. The first enlightenment in Europe, many people were hopeful and optimistic that as the gradual illuminating of the mind through science and reason uh, took place, a lot of these more superstitious religious dogmas would slowly retreat into the background and at least at least here in America um, 
we have these surprising movements like the evangelicals. Um, if the first enlightenment was not able to transform society as optimistically as they, they thought they would, in your idea of a new enlightenment, how would that be different? Well, the first, uh, the, the enlightenment did have a profound impact. The free market economies grew out of that. The industrial revolution followed and there was an enormous expansion of trade and commerce worldwide and a kind of and a focus on education and the democratic revolutions the american revolution and the french revolution followed from that unfortunately uh the europeans became colonists throughout the world and they were still engaged in the slave trade and uh, interested in profitable business so the enlightenment was not carried to the colonies till much later when slavery was finally abolished in Britain and elsewhere, and uh, where these ideas of enlightenment began to lead to liberation movements in Latin America, and eventually after the Second World War in, in, in Africa. And so the colonial empires disappeared uh, because they were inconsistent. But we need a new enlightenment, not simply... Uh, concerned with the Industrial Revolution and what happened in Europe, but a global or planetary enlightenment. And the, the agenda, as Jürgen Habermas had said at one time, the German philosopher, the agenda of the enlightenment still has to be fulfilled. But incidentally, there are two points to secularism. I mentioned earlier separation church and state. And the second is the secularization of human values in the area of ethics. And that has also been proceeding very, very rapidly, and the world is becoming secularized. So I'm an optimist that we may be overburdened um, by the emergence of fundamentalism in the United States and also the emergence of Islam and fundamentalist Hinduism and so on, and maybe Orthodox Judaism in certain parts of the world, and or a conservative Catholicism. Nonetheless, Long range, we've made enormous progress and uh, with emancipation going on. And I think the new enlightenment really has to extend this worldwide and has to focus on education and the development of new attitudes. Other than the resurgence of religious fundamentalism, what, what do you think are the greatest challenges to this new enlightenment? that uh, the the problem is uh, to develop a new psychology. And I would say first, to appreciate the methods of science, appreciate the tremendous impact of science on technology upon the world. And I fear that public does not understand science, mm -hmm. scientific outlook, and the possible application of science to ethics. Um, in my studies and as a teacher, I've noticed uh, books uh, in, in, in the humanities that I've been reading seem to sometimes frame the history of European colonialism and some of the terrible things that happened there. They associate those values with the values of modernism in general, things like scientific Objectivity. Well, I think there's some, maybe there'll be some truth to the fact that uh, the colonials did, that there was a contradiction between the belief in democracy, liberty, equality, fraternity of the French and the English and uh, of the Spanish in particular, 
but all, because they developed democracy later, but also of Americans as well. It seems to me that uh, the key point of the New Enlightenment is that we now recognize that everybody on the planet Earth, no matter where they live, has equal dignity and value. It's not just the Frenchman or the Englishman or the American or the Spaniard or the Dutchman or anyone else but everyone has equal dignity and value, and that's a new re- realization that ethics is global, ethics is planetary. Is that a is that a scientific discovery, though? How could you how could you infer that just from objective empirical data? Very good question, and a, a skeptical question. It's both scientific and moral. It's scientific in the sense that what we've discovered in uh, our studies of the migration of populations, DNA analysis, is that we're all members of the same species. And so out of Africa, tribes migrated to Europe, to Asia, over the Bering Sea, to North and South America, and also to Australia. So we're all the same family, and that's a scientific fact. Incidentally, I say that... The first Americans did not come over on the Mayflower, <laughs> and that this notion that we're a Christian nation because we came from England or the Netherlands or what have you, or conquistadors in Spain. There were millions of people here before we got here, and they were pagans. But uh, this sense of uh, the unity of the human species, you know, that's reinforced by American experience. America is the truly universal culture. It's multicultural, but every racial, religious, ethnic, national group is here in America. And that's been the constant process, so that we're kind of microcosm of the larger macrocosm of the, of the planet. Yes, so that's, so that's scientific, but then the ethical implication, well, we ought to treat Every individual, no matter where he or she lives, with equal dignity and value. So democracy should be developed uh, worldwide. You see, and we only we don't only treat Americans or Brazilians or Italians or what have you wherever they live in terms of their laws, but we need world system of law, or at least I would say planetary ethics, a recognition. Mm-hmm that were interdependent. And that is a moral principle. It's a recommendation. And what's the truth of that? Well, twofold. First, I think that morality has deep roots in who and what we are as as humans. The naked ape is capable of morality. And second, we ought to behave that way because of the consequences of not behaving that way. So it's utilitarian justification Mm -hmm. as well as an intuitive justification. So it is actually possible to be moral without some <laughs> deity hanging over our heads telling us what to do. Indeed, uh, Tim LaHaye, to the contrary, he, <laughs> he and his uh, uh, colleagues have said you can't be, be moral again unless you believe in God, and we hear that not only from the evangelical Protestant fundamentalists, we hear that from the Orthodox uh, Roman Catholics, or we hear that from the Muslims and so on. Well, I, I don't think that's true. From the fatherhood of God, you can develop contradictory views. And they clash. In the name of God, you can kill each other. All in the name of God, you go to war and you, and you dehumanize individuals. 
so I say that from a humanistic perspective, then, this principle of democracy that every person should be treated uh, equally, not in terms of distribution, but in terms of moral consideration. Yes. And, and I think that's the real importance of humanism. Atheism is one thing, but that doesn't, that doesn't inform um, much of how I live my life. It, just by not believing in the deity is one thing, but humanism is an affirmation. It says it's positive. Yes, that's very well stated. The atheists are critics of the claims of religion. And I, I agree. I, I consider myself a non-theist. I don't mm-hmm. believe that there's evidence for the existence of God. So I'm a skeptic about that, and I'm willing to be known as an atheist, but I'm afraid that's too narrow. That mm-hmm. telling that God is dead, he never existed, there's insufficient reasons to accept belief in God. Mm-hmm. And I surely can't use faith as a justification. <laughs> then I can believe anything. But that's a negative case. And I say, well, if God is dead... If he never existed, what then? And that's a positive case, and that's humanism. And then we have the project of the new enlightenment, the project to improve human life, <laughs> realize its potentialities, and, and, and achieve the, the goodness of living here and now, not in the afterlife, but on, in, our, in our world for ourselves and our fellow human beings. <laughs> but some people will respond uh, and say, well, this sounds like just another religion. No. (laughs) Please, you want to elaborate on that? You're attempting a systematic worldview, I assume, uh, to try to see the the, the total of reality, the way the world is, and the way we should behave in it, uh, and trying to bring about goodness on earth. Uh, Isn't this just another religious perspective? Well, it depends on what you mean by religion. Religion, in terms of the Latin derivation, means to bind. (laughs) <laughs> and it's a creed or a set of beliefs that you accept uh, on the basis of faith, but with probably some rational justification also. But the last analysis based on faith, real, reveal truth to Muhammad or Moses or, or Jesus or Paul or anyone else. And I'm expressing what I call a eupraxophy, good practical wisdom based on the sciences. We have to live. We have to make choices. We do. And so moral principles, there are degrees of rationality. And uh, So I have uh, moral convictions, if you will, but I don't think it's just another religion or just mm-hmm. based upon faith or even passion. So this general, general prescription is we all live on the planet Earth. Let us protect that planet and not destroy it by pollution and degradation. First, second... Let's consider every member of the human species an independent person entitled to consideration in moral terms. And uh, you say, why? And I say, well, you can make the case. So I would try to make a rational case for uh, consider the planet. This planetary abode that we live on is something needs to be preserved and protected or we will all suffer. And that seems to me to be pragmatic reason. But then second, uh, a society in which we respect other individuals and provide latitudes of freedom in a democratic world is preferable to one that is not in terms of the, the observed consequences. There are notorious skeptical writers, atheist writers, such as 
Nietzsche, some of the existentialists who insist a world without God, a world without the supernatural, is a lonely world, is a frightening world. You, on the other hand, have a very affirming view towards life. Where does that come from if there isn't a supernatural realm to count on? Well, if there is a supernatural, I counter life would be boring as all hell. <laughs> and it's just a question of obedience. So I got to spend eternity holding hands and singing hymns <laughs> and adoring a person who insists upon it as a slave. That is obedience and submit. Uh, that, that makes no sense to me. Uh, and it seems a parody. It's anthropocentric reading into the universe, our des- desires and fears of others. I love Nietzsche, and I give my, I, historically, as a professor of philosophy, I, I always give Thus Spake Zarathustra to my best students, <laughs> <laughs> and it opens up their eyes. So there's something wonderful about Nietzsche, Nietzsche's attack on the, on the naysayers and his attack on the the slave morality, and uh, think for yourself, be independent, be assertive, he says, though much in each I don't accept, but in any case, that part is very, very important. Uh, And concerning the existentialists, I agree that you only have one life to live. Everyone has to confront death, as Heidegger points out, and therefore... The op- should we become nihilists, retreat from life in utter despair, wring our hands and moan our fate, that this is a veil of tears? No, I, it's not a veil of tears. Life is what you make of it. It's your choice to lead an authentic life. So you have the power to uh, enter into the world, change it, to affirm your goals and values and achieve them. And the result can be creative exuberance. So I find life wonderful, full of opportunities, full of meaning, pregnant with so many different things, plans and projects that we can fulfill. So it doesn't lead to negativity. It leads to a constructive, positive, a kind of a buoyant, ebullient, exuberant life, creative, joyful happiness. I, I believe in the Humanist Manifesto 2, you said, and I, I'm probably not quoting this exactly right, but there is no deity to save us. We must save ourselves. No deity will save us. Yeah. We must save ourselves. Yes, indeed. True. We yeah. we must cure disease, get enough food to feed people, keep them warm and sheltered, deal with the natural disasters, try to improve life, use science to create tools and develop principles of ethical behavior so we can live together in peace and uh, and uh, with some measure of equanimity. Viewing life in such a way, how do you put a public face on that? And I, I guess what I'm really getting to is many people today, one of their first introductions or their first exposure in a while to a naturalistic way of looking at the world through several of these uh, authors who have been termed the the new atheists, people like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Dan Dennett, Dan Dennett, and, uh, right, and right, also right. And Victor, uh, Victor Steiger. They've written these bo- five books that right. became bestsellers. They're amazingly popular, and I know a lot of people who read them and, and are definitely struggling with the arguments that are made in there. But they're almost universally portrayed, at least by the media 
as being very negative, very aggressive. And all yes, well, it's unfortunate because actually in America it's been very difficult to criticize religion. Each of these authors were affiliated or have contributed to write columns for a free inquiry. Mm-hmm. So they're part of our secular humanist center for inquiry uh, movement that we've developed, including one here in the Michigan that I'm visiting now, the Grand, Grand Rapids. Uh, well, I, I don't think it's nev- negative. I think we only hear one side. We have thousands, hundreds of thousands of ministers and mullahs, mullahs and rabbis and priests from the pulpits announcing God and the way to salvation, and they disagree about that vehemently. <laughs> it uh, seems to me some criticism is healthy in a democratic, open, free society. It's about time. But I agree. It's not only to criticize, it's to affirm, as you stated. So what do you affirm? Uh, the affirmation is life can be beautiful. Life is intrinsically good. We can live together in peace. Uh, we can enjoy life. Uh, we can raise the standard of living. We can travel. We have leisure. We can read. We can write. Uh, we can sing. And um, we can uh, dance in the streets and every and go to gourmet restaurants and everything else as part of a good life. Yes. It, it's always interesting to me that these the four horsemen or five horsemen as, as they're <laughs> categorized um, a lot of times are clapped with this label of, of being so negative especially uh, Richard Dawkins in Unweaving the Rainbow and even in The God Delusion he does offer a lot of very yes. affirmative ideas but that doesn't get the press that's not what they're talking about on <laughs> South Park and on CNN he's he's labeled as a, a God hater. He's out to kill God. Your message, which is much more positive, isn't getting the same kind of press. That's true. <laughs> that's true. And that's unfortunate. And it says something about the press, does it not? And this is not only the conservative media, with, which damns us uh, mm-hmm. with vehemence, but even the liberal media has had fear and trepidation, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. I think... Religion affects everybody, and the claims of religionists have a right to be critically examined, uh, particularly their consequences. And so not to do it would be uh, morally uh, flagrant to violate the, the right to criticize. Why should religion be immune? But I do say, on the other hand, that we have to drop the other shoe, and that is a step forward. Namely, naturalism has its own agenda. Our agenda should not be anti-supernaturalism, mm-hmm. but pro-naturalism. Namely, we live in a natural world. We're a product of evolution. Science has opened a vast cosmic scheme of billions of galaxies. The human species are one, one among many, but this human species has developed culture, has developed social institutions, has developed the sciences, the arts, poetry, all of the aspects of a good life, and we ought to then learn to enjoy that, to contribute to that, and participate in it. So life itself is intrinsically good, and um, we need to acknowledge that and learn to live in the light of it, the fulfillment of life. I consider it to be the fundamental good.
And that was our talk with Professor Paul Kurtz, who passed away on October 20th of 2012 at the age of 86, a leader and founder of multiple organizations that have helped truly shape the skeptical movement and really the philosopher, as far as I'm concerned, of the 20th century. And as you heard there, a good man. Gone, but certainly not forgotten. And I encourage you, the listener, to get to our blog at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubt or doubtcast.org and share your thoughts and feelings on the passing of Paul Kurtz. Um, favorite quotes, if you happen to have met him, um, do you have any stories to share? Um, or other remembrances of how uh, he and or his work have uh, influenced your life. So um, join us there on our blog in um, continuing the discussion about uh, Professor Paul Kurtz. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.